You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. I want to uh, show you a little uh, piece of paper you're going to see kind of laying around. Uh, I love Sunday night church. I love Sunday night Bible study. I love uh, being able to come and gather and to study the word in a different context and setting. Sometimes on Sunday morning, it's a little more formal. On Sunday night, a little more laid back. You're going to start seeing these laying around. They'll be orange. Okay? And it's just Sunday night questions. And so as we sit in here on Sunday nights and you have questions, you think of questions, you can write the questions. This sounds kind of silly. All I ask is that you put your name. And if you forget to put your name, I disregard it because you get goofy questions that people will ask just to be antagonists and they won't put their name on it. Or, you know, it'll be something about Steve Spurrier and the Gators or something ridiculous like that. Uh, so uh, real questions, uh, and what we'll do is, is on Sunday night is, is probably a week later, and, and if questions come up, I will do my best. I don't know everything, uh, but I have a pretty good idea where to find the answers to about everything. And so uh, if you'll just utilize these as questions arise on maybe a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or something in Sunday school or something on Sunday morning, and I'll have these available out in the, in the mall area. I'll have them here tonight and, and scattered around. Take your Bible. We're going to be uh, Romans 9. We have been going through the book of Romans for several, several weeks uh, on Wednesday night. Um, and uh, we, we got to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I thought, you know, that's... Uh, it's a great wealth of biblical knowledge and understanding there, and, and a lot of our folks are in the choir and teaching, and so I thought, why don't we, why don't we segue to Sunday night and uh, to walk through these uh, passages of Scripture. So what I want to do, I'm going to read Romans 9 in its entirety, and uh, then we are going to come back and we are going to look at it, uh, see what God has to say, how it fits in, why it's rare there, and how it fits in to everything that has been in Romans to this point. So Romans 9, I'm going to read, uh, if you don't have your Bible, find your pew Bible and uh, follow along. It's not, I, just, I want you to take your Bible and to follow along to yourself as I read. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Of course, this was the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing this. That I have great sorrow and un ceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise who is counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And with scripture there you know it's an account of Genesis 18 and Abraham and Sarah. So, And Sarah shall have a son. And not only so but also when Rebekah. Moving forward to Genesis chapter 25, not also, but Rebecca will have conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Historically, the, older, the oldest son was the ruling, ruling child and was the heir of all things. And so that was a complete flip of what would have taken place in Jewish culture. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall, then, what shall we then, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that by my name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, here is mercy. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, What have you made? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter have no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable and use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
If the Lord of hosts have not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, just the joy and wonder of your word. Uh, we thank you for the promises of salvation that is so richly taught uh, in your writings, this particular New Testament book of Romans. And so, Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts and our mind to see you for who you are and that we will drive from that a great encouragement and hope in your everlasting promises that you give through your word and you confirm by the scripture and by your spirit. And this we pray in God's glorious name. Amen and amen. Well, for those that have been able to, to be in uh, the Bible study, as we started Romans 1 many, many weeks ago, we've been, been kind of tracking along as to what is taking place in the book of Romans. And we have seen the, the, the need of salvation. And one of the themes of the book of Romans is God's righteousness and uh, that we are saved from righteousness apart from the law and works. And so as we've gone through the book of Romans, we have seen the, the need of this righteousness and this righteousness provided through Jesus Christ. And then we turned into a, a section that went through chapter 8. It was an idea of sanctification and what it means as a believer and all that God has given us to allow us to grow in our likeness and, and understanding uh, of who he was. And as I was preparing to do this, uh, the other Sunday night, and even as we were walking through this a, a few weeks, I just fell in love with that last section of, of Romans eight. I've, I've read it, no telling how many times, but then as I had studied Romans from chapter one, all the way through, it just became so real to me that all we have in Jesus Christ in Romans eight, what can separate us from the love of God? I mean, what a promise that is. Uh, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through this list of, of all that can never separate us from the love of Christ. And then at the end of Romans 8, we have these five questions that he's already answered. And he's giving them in kind of a rhetorical, duh way. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how we not able also give us graciously all things? Who shall bring a charge against God elect? Who is he to condemn? And then that last question in verse 35 of Romans 8, who shall separate us or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it's kind of like period, the end of chapter 8. And then you get to Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And it's like, if you, if you look at your Bible, and I, I, wanna, I, beg, I beg you, I plead with you to be a person that is reading the Bible in your devotional life. We talked about this in our men's group. I'm, I love devotions. I've got devotions. I love Sunday school quarterlies. I, I love books that help me understand the book. Please be a person that does not depend on Sunday school quarterlies and devotion for your time in the Word. Because until we become students of God's word, let's take the book of Romans, from Romans 1 all the way through to 16, we're never going to see fully how everything fits together. And that is sad because we're missing the, the glory and the greatness of God and his word that we would never be able to see until we allow the spirit to show us that together. And so people have even said, boy, if, you know, it's almost like 9, 10, and 11 shouldn't be there. If we could just take 9 and 10 and 11 out, because if you read it, it goes straight from Romans, the end of Romans 8, and then it flash forwards to Romans chapter 12 like it didn't skip a beat. 
And then Romans, you know, Romans 8 ends, ends with our sanctification, nothing separates from the love of Christ. And then it goes right into Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It just flows perfectly together. What in the world does Romans 9, 10, and 11 do there? And what do we care about Israel? And what does this have to do with sanctification and growing? Well, it's got a lot to do with it. And so... As I've read chapter 9, I promise you, I don't even need a show of hands. Very few of us would raise our hands and say, I remember vividly as I was in church walking through a Bible study verse by verse through Romans 9 and Romans 10 and verse 11. I promise you, very few of us could say that. And as a matter of fact, if I throw out what Romans 9 means, means to people, I'm going to hear two answers. I don't know. Or, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And that's all we get out of there. And so when we first begin to read Romans 9, we get to Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, I don't like that. I'm going to quit reading this. And we never truly understand what is God saying when he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And so here is what is going on in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The church at Rome was predominantly a Gentile church. The converts in Rome were not Jewish. They were mostly Gentile. And so scholars believe what is happening here is that the, the church at Rome is predominantly Gentiles. And there's a few, you know, Jews within the church. But the, as, the, as the church began to grow, most of the Jews pushed against that Jesus was a Messiah and pushed against that Jesus was a Messiah. And so the, the church became a, a more of a Gentile church with Paul's ministry into the, the Gentile world. And so there were all of these questions that began to spring up. Well, if God made all these promises to the Israelites and the Israelites have not been saved, then God must not be a God that keeps his word. Or it could be something along these nature. Well, if God promised the nation of Israel, he would make them a great people. But yet here we see that the, the nation of Israel is not a great people. Then how can we put our hope in, in, in the God of, the, of, of this message of Christianity? How will I know as a Gentile that God is going to keep his promises to me? And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with what happened to the nation of Israel in the past? Romans 9, Romans 10. What is taking place with the Israelite people in the present? How are they saved today? And then Romans chapter 11. What happens to the nation of Israel in the past? In the future, I mean. But interwoven in all of this that is addressing plainly the nation of Israel, it is also information for us as Gentiles. And so I just kind of simply title these next few Sunday nights, the God saving work of righteousness. So tonight is part one. So let's divide Romans nine into two segments. One's real short, one's real long, and we're getting through both of them tonight. Okay. I got a text while ago. There was uh, an, uh, an official difficulty scorecard infraction by everybody on the golf course, except for Tiger. He won the masters. Okay. All right, so we don't need to know who won. If the University of Georgia graduate Patrick Reed is going to hang on to the end, we don't know yet. See, y'all didn't know he was a graduate of the University of Georgia, did you? That's why he's going to probably put on a green jacket this evening. Amen. All right, so we can divide Romans 9 up into two areas. Paul's sorrow, God's sovereignty. 
Tonight would be a great night to have access to a smartphone or go home because I have all of this online on, on the Pastor John Beck uh, website. I've got a, all these things I've said and some of the things I'm not going to say, uh, but just for the sake of time. So let's go to Romans cha- uh, chapter 9. Let's go to verses 1 and 5. We could simply say the tragedy of, of Israel's unbelief, verses 1 through 5. So what, it, what is Paul saying? Man, I am just heartbroken over the nation of Israel. I would give anything for the nation of Israel to see who Jesus is. I mean, think about the gospel of John. Jesus is in the temple. Jesus is in the course. Jesus is everywhere. And it is the religious leaders that deny Christ. They, you know, they're, they're looking for the Messiah and he's standing right in front of them. And Paul says, man, I'm heartbroken. Uh, we could stop there and have a great Bible study on evangelism. Boy, I wish we were that heartbroken over lost people. That we would give anything so that people could come to know the true saving faith. And that's what Paul is saying. I would give anything. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness to me in the spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he basically said, I would give anything for the Jewish people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So as we think about this, Paul does begin to to point out and just just for the sake of, of, of giving information that I think is there. Notice what it says there. If you think about what is taking place, Paul said, man, I'm heartbroken. They don't know Christ. After God said, I would bless them and all that God had given them. Notice what it said that he had given him. There there are eight things that God had bestowed upon them. Adoption, glory, the covenants, the law, worship, the promises, belonging to the patriarchs. Number eight, that Christ even came from their lineage. He is one of them. And they rejected him. The majority of of the nation of Israel rejected Christ. And so that is why I said earlier, it may not make sense when I initially said it, that is why people were saying, well then if God, if, if none of them came to, if the Jewish people could not even come to Christ, then how could we come to Christ? If he, if he adopted and gave the promises and gave the glory and he gave all these things and the, and the patriarchs came from Abraham and even Christ came from the Israelites, then why is it that the Israelites rejected Christ? How, how could God say, I've given you all of these things and they just reject Christ? And Paul reminds them. This is the biggest part of chapter 9. God's sovereignty. And as we think about God's sovereignty, the word for God's sovereignty carries the idea, God's rule and God's authority. All right, as we think about what God can do and cannot do, a a simple way to think of it, he can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. Why? Because it's his. I mean, you think about things that are yours. If I were to, you know, Take one of y'all's smartphones. Smartphones are kind of precious to people, aren't they? What if I like took your smartphone and just like broke it over the corner of this thing? Why would you do that to my phone? That was my phone. God says, I am sovereign over with rule and authority over my creation. Have you ever thought of that? 
Everyone is created in the image of God in the sense that he, he is, he's made us. Everyone lost, alive, trees. He has dominion over the storm. He, he rules everything. And that, I think that's what we miss when we, we think about the sovereignty of God. God has sovereignty over everything. And I'm going I'm to allude to say this. That's a good thing. That should make us rejoice and shout. Because if God is not, I mean, do you want me in charge of everything? How would that work out? Well, God's going to take a month off. Me and Matt are going to run the show for about a month. How do you think that would look like? Dylan's visiting with us. He's been in seminary for a couple of semesters. We'll give him a shot. He's going to run the universe for a week or two. We want God to be sovereign over everything. Here's a pastoral example. When I don't mind sharing this. I don't think I'm overstepping pastoral privilege or whatever. I can't think of the word I want to say. I get a call from Mona Gordon. John, you need to get here right now. Scott Smith has passed away. Right, there's two things going on. So let's walk through this in my head. If God is not in control, there's nothing I can offer because I can't do anything. But because I trust in God and trust in Christ and trust in the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I trust that there's a God in heaven that is all loving and merciful and just and fair. I can drive to that home and know I've got hope for that family because I'm not offering me. I'm offering the Lord of the universe. If that is not the case, we have no hope. And so Paul says, listen, church at Rome. Yes, I'm heartbroken over the nation of Israel, but don't let that take away from who God is. Because God is sovereign. And we think about God's rule and God's authority. I need to talk real quick here. We need to understand with all that. When I said this morning, I wish I would have had a dry erase board up there. Draw it. God, draw a line, me. Where God is, his sovereignty, his rule, his authority. That is all that is going on under God's dominion and rule that I have no understanding of or no control over. The secret things belong to God. I couldn't handle, you know, could you imagine getting a sneak a peek of, uh, you know, uh, of what God was doing. It would scare, we'd probably just, you know, well, we would die immediately because we'd be coming to the glory and the presence of the Lord. We couldn't handle, we couldn't handle what was going on up there. God's sovereignty is above that line. God's purposes is above that line. God's eternal plan is above that line. But I can promise you this, he has one. There's not one event or one thing that takes place outside of God's eternal purpose and plan. Now, we know that, don't we? He's even said that, and the, the son says, I don't know when I'm coming back, only the father does. And so that should not alarm us, it should comfort us that there is a God that we can trust. As we think about things, I just made some little quick notes. We often think or hear people say, why did this happen? What is the good as is? This is not fair. There's no way that God would allow something like this to happen. Yet when we look at life, we understand this. Romans 8, 28, I've, I've literally fallen in love with the end of Romans chapter 8. 
All things work together for the good. All things work together for those that love the Lord. What is all things? All things. Circle that. Go back to Romans 8. Don't stay there too long. You won't come back. Know that all the, for all those who love God, all things work together. I, just this week, all things. All things is all things. All things work together. How can we say all things work together? Because he has an eternal plan from the beginning to the end. All things work together. He's got a plan and a purpose. And we're part of that. That is what we call God's sovereign. When we pray, our Father, which art in heaven. What comes after that? Hallowed be thy name. What comes after that? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His eternal purpose and plan. And so we see that unpacked here. All right, look at verses 6 and 9. We're going to go a lot quicker now. Israel is rejected. But yet Paul is saying... I'm broken over. You can see, here's a great tension here. Paul wants him to know Christ. He's begging that they know Christ. I, I couldn't imagine a more hot-hearted preacher than Paul when he is preaching the gospel to someone that doesn't know Christ. He is begging people to come to Christ. But yet he's not going to let the world tell him. That would be like somebody saying, well, I, was, I visited, it'd be like a, a skeptic visiting with us on Sunday morning and saying, yeah, the gospel's not enough. People didn't get saved today. It's all a lie. Israel didn't get saved. And Paul said, that's furthest from the truth. Yes, I'm heartbroken over it, but I serve a a sovereign God. So the word of God has not failed. Look at six through nine. But it is not though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And there's an example of Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac. Abraham's promise through Sarah. You remember that? We don't have time to go back and really unpack it because I want to get through the whole chapter tonight. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. That was a promise. But what did they do? They doubted God. So they took matter into their own hands. Well, how many of us have ever done put the matter into our own hands? Does it take away from God's sovereignty? Nope. Didn't alter his plans one bit. He had a plan. And so we see this example of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham. But he was not the seed of promise. He was the seed of man. And so it goes on to say, And not all the children of Abraham because of his offspring, but though Isaac shall your offspring be named, this means that not the children of the flesh, you are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this sake, what was the promise said? About this time next year I return and Sarah will give a son. And so we see here that the word of God has not failed. That's what six and nine are telling us. The word of God has not failed. I told Abraham there was going to be a son of promise and that happened. But there's a son of flesh. Here's an interesting fact. We have Isaiah. Isaac, I mean. We have Ishmael. We know that Isaac was one of the forefathers and the children of Abraham to come through. You know where the descendants of Ishmael are? It's the Islamic faith consider Ishmael the firstborn of Abraham and one of their forefathers. So we have children of promise and we have children of flesh. The key is God's word did not fail. He kept his word. 
Now we see verses 10 through 13. This is where we get a little, whoa, get a little nervous here. Do you know why we get so nervous with Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated? Two read, one main reason, we've never studied it. You would be surprised in studying this passage, the number of times I have come across where pastors just say, I'm not going there. Now, may I fall, leprosy fall upon my body. If y'all come in my office one day and go, hey, Pastor John's got leprosy. You know, I have told the Lord, I can't preach that. Because that's what I would beg the Lord to do if I ever said, I will not preach your word. So many pastors, I mean, I, I, I always use this as an example. When I went to college, I loved my home church. I love my home pastor. I have great memories growing up in church. And God used my home church greatly in, in, the, in the means by which I came to faith in Christ. But I will tell you right now emphatically, I never heard sound doctrine and biblical preaching and teaching in my church. Now, that's not for me to judge. And so when I went to college and seminary and began to learn things that I was being taught to be a pastor, I'm like, well, surely if I'm learning it to be a pastor, shouldn't I be telling it when I become a pastor? Regardless of how misunderstanding it may be. And so God's word has not failed. And number two, look at it, verses 10 through 13, in order that God's purpose of election may continue. Now, why does that word election make us so nervous? Do you know how many times election and predestination and for? Do you know how many times those words in the scripture? A lot. And as we start to read and begin to think about that, and there's many reasons why it's so controversial. I'll just real quick. There are many reasons that the word election is so controversial. One is, is we don't understand the terms that are used. And it's like politics. Have you ever thought about politics? I always use politics as an example. Go ask a Republican what a Democrat thinks. Okay? Go ask Donald Trump Hillary's politics. Would you, you know what you're going to get? Lord, that's the craziest woman that's ever been on the face of the earth. Why would anybody vote for her? Go ask Hillary what Donald Trump's political stances are. Lord, that's the goofiest man on the face of the earth. Who would vote for him? And so it's just the definition of terms. We don't even know what terms mean, and, and we, we don't define terms biblically. We, we allow other people to define our terms, and so we, it just scares us to death when we think about election and predestination and Jacob I've loved and, and Esau I've hated. Number two, the, another reason why we, it's, these things are so controversial, I alluded to it, we've never been taught it. We don't understand it. We've never had to think through it. Pastors in their grace and mercy trying to be helpful just say, don't worry about it. I want you to worry about it. I want you to wrestle with the text. I want you to see in the text the, the, that, that God is sovereign over everything. I want people to see in the text that Judas was held responsible for every decision he made. John, how do you work that together? I don't have to work it together. They're not separated. I don't reconcile friends. They're not enemies. But we never wrestle with it. And so Paul plainly is saying, listen... Look at verses 10. And not so when Rebekah had conceived her child by one man, her forefather Isaac. 
Though they were not yet born and done, done nothing, they had done nothing. Parents had done nothing. In order that God's purpose, circle that, God's purpose. If, if somebody were to say, what, how do you define election and predestination and, and, and these words? What does election mean? You know what I tell people? That God's got a purpose and a plan and it will happen. That's the plainest definition of election. Election is the process that involves salvation. God's purpose and plan in salvation. It's God's purpose in salvation who will be saved, who is not saved. So why in the world am I going to work up a, a frenzy understanding something that God's purpose and plan is? And so what we do is we create an answer for that. Well, God would never do that or God's plan did anything. Here, here's a great understanding if your theology is good or right. Anything that takes away from God's sovereignty over his creation is bad theology. Now, there are going to be some people in heaven that have bad theology. So I'm not saying you have to be a good old Southern Baptist to be in heaven, even though Jesus was from the Southern Kingdom. That never went over very well in Minnesota. They made fun of the way I spoke, almost to the point of insulting. I still can see Sharon's face when someone said he thought everybody from Georgia was a hillbilly. You don't tell people from Georgia they're hillbillies. Deliverance people are hillbillies. That's the movie. Remember that, Burt Reynolds? I don't watch it. Sharon told me about it. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. I got all, got all, got all sidetracked with that. <laughs> Some, Southern Kingdom something. Uh, see, I, let me get back to text. That's what happens when you get away from text. You get chasing rabbits. Um, okay, so, so the, the idea was is that we, 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 we've never been taught. We don't, we don't understand it. and It becomes controversial. Anything that takes away from the sovereignty of God is bad theology. There are going to be people with bad theology in heaven. I understand that. I mean, I take a, a good Methodist. You might have got a good Methodist background. I, how in the world do you see sprinkled in Scripture? I mean, I just, I tell people, I told my grandmother this at 100 years old. I've got to get you baptized. Why? You don't see sprinkled in Scripture. Now, is it salvific? No. But, I mean, it's pretty simple. The, 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 we're debating the mode of baptism in Scripture. Okay. I mean, that's a silly example. That's not salvific. There's a lot of people that have bad theology because they won't trust the God of Scripture and it makes them nervous and they start making up things that God would do and not do. And I, would, I, I tell you something, I had a debate one time with somebody. They started it. Oh, I don't have it with me. Oh, goodness. It won't, won't mean anything. I don't have it with me. I'm going to read it next week. It talks about their understanding of God's plan for individual salvation. So you've got to come back for next week. I'm going to read a, 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 an explanation of that. So we see in the text, he chose Jacob, the second born twin over Esau. He made this decision long before they were born. There's no other way that you can walk through that text and do anything with it. There's just nothing you can do with it. If you do, you're going to spend more time trying to find the sovereignty of God not there than just saying it's there. He did it to show that his sovereign decrees are not based on what yet unborn human beings might or might not do. This is just God's plan. Now we see these words, hate and love. Now we don't have time, but there are several places these same words are used. 
We've got, I'll, I'll flip there. That's why I said if you had the outline, it's a lot easier. Matthew 6. So what, what, is that, what, what does the word hate mean? That's what the issue is. What does it mean he, he loved Jacob and he hated Esau? What does that word hate mean? Well, let's go to Scripture. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one serves two masters, for he will hate the one. That's the word, hate the one and love the other. So you could say, well, all right, I see that. So it doesn't mean that we're to hate money. Maybe it just means we don't like it as much. So we see love and hate. And so a lot of times what we try to do, let's, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong or evil, but let's, we see in other places that word hate, it does mean that we don't love as much. So we didn't love Esau as much. And so a lot of folks have said to that and agree to that. Look at Luke chapter 14, 26. It's another good example of the word hate that is used. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. Aha, there we go. So, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, I've got to, I've got to hate my parents. So people say, oh, right there, Romans 9, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It says we're to hate our parents. What does that mean? It means obviously we don't hate our parents. So we do see a sense of love me more. So we could see a sense of that, you know, God loved Jacob more than Esau. I think there's some truth in there, but I don't think it's the truth. My flesh would say, I wish that was the truth. I wish we could make hate not mean hate. Look at Malachi. Chapter 1. I think this is a great way of understanding God's purpose when we think of Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Because here's what we have to remember. Scripture interprets Scripture. John does not interpret Scripture. You know, one of the worst things you can do in Bible study, even though we may say it, we do, if we say it, please, we don't mean it. Let's all read Romans 9, and what does Romans 9 mean to you? Well, in my sarcastic way, it doesn't matter what it means to you, right? What does it matter, who, what, does it matter what it means, what God intended it to mean? So how dangerous could that be? That's the world we live in now, <laughs> This is what Scripture means to me. This is what Scripture means to me. So I tell people, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Not what I want Scripture to mean. Not to take a Scripture here. And here's some things we did when you think about interpretation. We'll take a piece of Scripture here and go, aha! And then we'll totally ignore other places that it's written. You know? It'd be like a, you know, somebody taking Romans 9. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Aha! God only loves those that he have chosen before the foundation of the world. He hated Esau. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we, we, God desires all men to be saved. We just, we, not, we, just, we just don't have that in our scripture. Or we come over here and say, God loved the world. And then we define love in our terms. God loves the world. He wouldn't send anybody to hell because that wouldn't be love. And God loved us so much. He just created the world and said, I just love you. That's granddaddy love there. But it's not biblical love. 
So we can't take a piece of scripture here and a piece of scripture there. It all, scripture interprets scripture all the time. Somebody says, what do you think hate means? In Romans chapter 9, it means hate. How do you hate a baby? How do you hate baby Esau before he's born? I don't know. I'm not God. Malachi 1 verse 2. I loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau's, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He's still looking. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his and left his jack, her, I can't read and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Ugh, that's there, isn't it? God said, "I have laid to waste Esau's heritage as under jackals." I mean, that's just tough. And when you see that, I'm like, and I always tell myself, "Woo, glad it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there." I like kind of historically looking at things. Why did why could God say, "I hate the heritage of"? I, in Malachi, he wrote, Old Testament, I hate the heritage of Esau and as they were given to jackals on a hill. How could God say that? Because he knows all things. Do you know who one of the descendants of Esau was? King Herod the Great that massacred babies in Bethlehem because he thought someone would come and rule over him. That is why God said, I hate Esau. Will King Herod stand in eternal damnation because God said he hated King Herod? No. King Herod will stand in eternal damnation like anybody that stands in eternal damnation because he rejected true saving faith in Jesus Christ. How do you work that together? I don't even try to work that together. I just know apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Spurgeon. Spurgeon is one of my my favorites. He's a good Baptist preacher that everybody kind of seems to love and respect. Someone asked Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God would say that he hated Esau. This is good. Might want to write this down. He replied, that's not my trouble. My trouble is why does he even love Jacob? (laughs) See, it's like Brantley today. Now, Sharon, we got to lunch. He goes... He didn't, somebody asked Sharon, did Brent really say that? Not with the same tone that John said this morning. So I guess sometimes I might exaggerate my tone for effect just a little bit. But that's exactly what Brantley was saying. Katie, we don't deserve anything. That's what makes grace and mercy so wonderful. And that's what Spurgeon was saying. See, we look at it the wrong way. Why would God hate Esau? Oh, my goodness. And Spurgeon says, it's not why does he hate Esau. Why would he love Jacob? Why would he love me? I have no idea. And there's not one thing I bring to the table that compares to God's holiness, but in his love and mercy, he opened my eyes. There's no way to explain it. Spurgeon's got good, deep theology. 
He doesn't have a problem with the hatred on Esau. He can't understand why God would love any of us as sinners. Let me amplify that a little bit. You're already redeemed and you keep sinning against God, don't you? See, if we forget about that. That's what the love of God is, and he loves us and he keeps us. Not that he's sending people to hell or rejecting. We're all going, that he loves me. I mean, I'm every, you know, my, my, that was the biggest struggle I have in my call to ministry. How can I be a pastor? How can I be saved? How can I even be saved? God says, because I love you. That's love. Verses 14 and 29. God's plan for Israel's unbelief is not unfair. So what, what's at stake here? Is why do some believe and why do some not believe? Why did not Israel not believe? Because God said that was the plan. They were not going to believe. Those that did not believe or not believe. Now that can become very fatal with your preaching. Could you imagine? I've met a pastor or two that really believe that. It's kind of a cold, academic feel to the church. Just not a lot of expectation there's a great understanding of God and his word and God's holiness, but it's just like, you know, God's going to save who he's going to save. I mean, that would be kind of a unique invitation. We're going to sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. Will all the elect just come forward? All those that God loved, would you just slip out of your pew right now? For those that he doesn't love, you don't care and you're never going to come forward anyway. This just may, I mean, that's just not, that doesn't make sense. But yet at the same time, God says, I do have a plan. But I don't know that plan. And I know when I open, when my eyes were open to the gospel, I know very clearly that, you know, another way you could say that repentance is God's plan and and faith is my reaction or something along those lines. God has to do a work. We have to acknowledge God does a work. We also acknowledge that we have faith. So God's plan for unbelief, this is not unfair. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, Rome, this is not unfair. This is not unjust. And he gives these examples. Look at there in verses 14. He gives the example of Moses and Pharaoh. I was looking at verse 14 in Malachi. That made no sense. So let me get back to Romans. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair that some people are going to hell and and some people are going to heaven? And Paul said, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. That's Exodus 33, 19. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, so then... Verse 16, so that depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for, even when I was reading this, I I circled it, for this purpose. Never lose track of God's purpose. There is a purpose. Think about this from your standpoint. If God did not have a plan and say, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. This is going to the promise of the Israelites, but when they rejected, it opened the door for the Gentiles. It wasn't that God stood back there and said, hey, I don't know how this is going to play out. This is for the Israelites. They rejected. God says, plan B, let's take it to the Gentiles. If God didn't have a purpose and a plan, we wouldn't be sitting here today. 
We'd be Jewish believers. I told a gentleman one time that was wanting to debate God's purpose and plan. I said, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Without God's purpose and plan, you wouldn't be here. You're questioning God's purpose and plan. And if it was not for God's perfect purpose and plan, you wouldn't be here. Step back and think of it this way. This will humble you. How many of you had parents that brought you to church when you were little? Raise your hand. How many people do you think wish they could have had your parents and brought them to church? That's God's plan. How many of you loved, proud to be an American? I am. Whose plan was that you weren't born in some village on the Amazon? Bones stuck in your nose and ears and forehead and stuff. I'd make a cool Tarzan swinging from the trees. That's grace, brother. It wasn't anything I did. My home wasn't the best home in the world, but because of the home I grew up in, I got exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose and plan. Who am I to question that? Instead of questioning it, we rejoice in it. We we can't have it both ways. I always share this with folks that will listen. You can't have it both ways. He's either God or he's not God. Why are we debating it? I've never been a camp guy. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy that nobody likes. Did y'all know that? Can I be, come, whoa, it's me. I can go to the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm the guy that nobody likes because I never pick sides. I'll stand on the word. Hey, we're going to be meeting in conference room 48, all the blah, 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 camp, camp on this side. Don't tell anybody unless you're in that camp. Hey, after lunch in the conference room too, everybody against that camp. We got our own camp. We're going to be over there. I'm the only one standing in the bookstore. But I make fun of both of them. Now, if a camp is standing on the word, so be it. But we have to stand on the word and let the word speak. So God's plan for unbelief, this is what he says. God just says, Exodus 33, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. I raised you up. Look at verse, the following verse, that I might show you the power in you and that by my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. He said, I saved you. It's to demonstrate my power, my grace, and my mercy so the message will be spread to the end of the earth. For this purpose, my power in you. Has the potter have no right over the clay? Think about raising a child. Does that child have a clue what's going on? You know, when I was probably six, seven, or eight years old, all I probably would have eaten is Pop-Tarts and peanut butter and jelly. I mean, really. Now, when you turn 50, isn't it funny when when you're... a teenager, you eat Pop-Tarts and ice cream, and you still gain no weight. Now I can get a half a Pop-Tart, my blood sugar goes all to you know what, and I can't function the rest of the day. And people look at you and say, hey, we're gonna, oh, I'm going to have a little sliver of that. I'm kind of getting old. When you raise children, you don't give them what they think is best. You give them what you know that they need. God says, listen, I'm going to have mercy on who I'm going to have mercy. I'm not going to have mercy on someone and then say, but I wanted your mercy. No. Has a potter have no right over the clay? But even in that, God is saying that it is for my glory. Everything God does is for his glory. Whether I understand it or not, it's for his glory. 
When he says these things, it is so that his name will be glorified, not to argue over, debate over. Look at Hosea 25, and we'll close with this. Hosea, not Hosea, verses 25 and 26. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And so as we look at verses 14 and 29, God's plan for Israel's unbelief is not unfair, but perfectly just. Verses 14 and 24, with Moses and Pharaoh, we see God's mercy. Verses 25 and 26, with Hosea, we see God's grace. God says, listen, I will call my people. I am calling my people. I've always called my people. My people will always answer. My people will always hear. I have given you a promise. My theology and my thinking may be a little bit different than others. One of the dangers that we have is we hear kind of like a a TV preacher that's got a big audience and we think, man, that sounds good. I kind of like that. And we kind of went through this big prophecy thing about 20 or 30 years ago. We got so wrapped up on prophecy and end times that if you ever say anything contrary to that belief, you almost come across as a heretic. But yet the people that call you a heretic couldn't tell you 10 verses in scripture to back up what they believe. I said something about questioning the rapture and somebody literally started quoting left behind to me. I said, when I meant reference, I didn't mean what chapter of the 14th book of Left Behind. I was kind of meaning a scripture verse. I don't believe scripture explicitly teaches that there's going to be a fulfillment of the nation of Israel. People say, oh my Lord. Did we really check his resume when we called him? That's all I've ever heard. Well, that may be all you've ever heard, but have you ever studied in the scripture and seen that played out? I would say, I would humbly submit to you that there's a new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is going to be a great revival of the nation of Israel through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be a Gentile door and an Israel door from this point forward. We're all going through that narrow door, Jews and Gentiles alike, zippy doo die and zippy day through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not, to me, not going to be a, a, you know, a restoration to the nation of Israel and all the promises of seed that was given in the Old Testament be restored. And there's something that will be a literal temple built and Jesus Christ will sit on the throne and the throne of David in Jerusalem. I'm going, whoa, my goodness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he told Jose, I will, I've got a people. My people. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. He's talking about the nation, the Gentiles. He's talking about outside the nation of Israel. That was the plan. Whosoever is not the nation of Israel, it's whosoever. It's all humanity. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. It's the possibility that they could possibly save outside the nation of Israel. And in the very place where I said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. If that was not true, we cannot be here unless you're a Jew tonight. That is God's grace, getting something you did not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve, a gift that you didn't deserve. And then last, verses 27 and 29. I told y'all I would do it. You doubters said I couldn't. And got through the whole chapter. Verses 27 through 29. God's remnant. Israel 
Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, verse 27, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would all have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God, Isaiah prophesied, and Abraham said, listen, if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, if it wasn't for God sparing a remnant, everybody would have been taken away with. Isaiah is prophesying to about the nation of Israel that is in captivity. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. It hasn't happened yet. But when it does happen, they're going to be in captivity, but they will not stay there forever. They're not all coming back, but there will always be a remnant. That kind of alludes to what I was saying this morning. No matter what takes place in the society we live in, there's always going to be God's people. I jokingly said this morning, over the last several weeks, we've been in training mode like church planters. You know, a church planter doesn't have a building, so they set up their Sunday school in strip malls, and they move around, they're scurrying around. And I was telling Eric's class when they were going up to the choir robe closet, you're back in the choir robe closet. You're like church planters. Any, anywhere you can find space for a church planter. So, you know, we, we live in a day and age where we just fret over, what if it's not like it used to be? What are we going to do? What are we going to do when we can't pray in school anymore? What are we going to do when we can't talk about Jesus in the public school system? They couldn't talk about Jesus in the public school system in Roman days. There'll always be a remnant. Because until the Lord's return, his purpose and plan will take place. A couple of questions and I'm going to close in prayer. As we read Romans 9, it focuses in on Paul's sorrow and, and God's sovereignty in the past of the nation of Israel. Romans 10 is dealing with the present nation. You know, when it was written, you could say the nation of Israel and us, the present nation tense what is going on with the righteousness of God you could say in parentheses if 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 the chapter 9 is God's sovereignty you could say in Romans 10 human responsibility for those that call on the name of the Lord we say how will they hear unless someone tells them and we need to go so that was the past what God did he had a plan they didn't reject God because God wasn't enough or the Nothing didn't take place. The spirit wasn't powerful enough or the gospel wasn't powerful enough. They rejected the gospel. Judas betrayed God, Jesus Christ, as the plan to put Jesus on a cross. Judas didn't reject Jesus Christ and Jesus go, uh-oh. But yet at the same time, Judas is responsible for his actions. So when we think about God's sovereignty in Romans 9, we ask questions like this. Is God unfair that not everyone is saved? No, because he knows that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And we cannot control that. We just trust in God's loving mercy. How can people be blamed for rejecting God if he is some way determines who will accept and who will not accept? Now, I'm going to tell you, so let me read that again. How can we... How can people be blamed for rejecting God if he in some way determines who will accept him? You know, so how can, why would God do that? And what do we do about that? I'm going to tell you like I used to tell my children in middle school. We got any middle school girls here? No middle school girls here. Remember back when you were in middle school? 
I'm not going to pick on you because I think you may be busy with us. I'll pick on you. You remember being in middle school and all the drama? Oh. Middle school drama. You know what I hear? I'm an expert on middle school drama. Here you go. Worry about what you can control and not anything else. Get off Instagram. Get off Facebook. Reading Facebook posts and Instagram posts going, I think I know what they meant by that. They said this, and I think like we're omniscient or something, okay? Only worry about what you know you can worry about. That's middle school drama advice, okay? No drama. How can people be blamed for rejecting God if in some way they have no control over what they're doing? Quit worrying about it. You're worrying about something you're never going to understand. All you need to worry about is what God has told you to do. To believe the gospel, to trust the gospel, to preach the gospel, to pray for people's soul, and go out and do the work of an evangelist. That's all we can control. We know God's up to something. We have no idea what it is. All I know is that I believe that the gospel that I preach each and every time I'm in the pulpit will not return unto God void, and I'm begging and pleading for people to come to faith in Christ. Who are we to answer back to God? Has the potter have no right over the clay? Has the creature, the creature does not have grounds to question the creator? We trust in his word, the whole counsel of God's word. Everything God does is for the riches of his glory. Everything fits perfectly into his perfect will and plan. And that's what I, I rest in that. Everything fits perfectly into God's plan. The secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Preacher, don't you preach on Romans 9? You're going to stir that crowd up? You know? Funny little story. We were, in Romans 9, we were going through Romans in one of my surveys in college, and the preacher, the, the, the professor literally did have to go out of town when it got to Romans 9, and we ridiculed him because he was too afraid to teach Romans 9. Romans 9 is a clear teaching of the Word of God, that God has a plan. And I'm grateful that as a believer for God's plan. But I'll tell you this. This is heavy stuff. Not that I'm a heavy thinker. This is heavy stuff. So hear me. Apart from God's grace and mercy, you would have never come to Christ on your own. Your flesh is too powerful. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. It is only by the grace and mercy of God that we were born to the parents we had, that we attended church, that we set up under the gospel. Apart from God's love for us, no one would come to Christ. And so we rejoice in that. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. There are many hard things in the word that we do not necessarily have to understand, but yet we should embrace and love and not question and run from. And so, Lord, we do live in a world that we just love to be divisive and we love to argue and we love to do these things. But I pray as a church we would never be that way. But yet at the same time, Lord, that we would be a church that stands on the word of God the infallible, inerrant, trustworthy Word of God. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the precious gift of your scripture in our mind and our heart this evening. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.